All right. We want to welcome all of our listeners and viewers to another episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in tech, business, and media. And joining us today is James Hyington. James is the Global Head of Diversity Strategy at Google. And let's jump in and get to know James. James, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on my Minority Report. I'm so excited to chat with you all today. Absolutely. We're excited you're here. And for those folks that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Google and and sort of what you're doing for work? Yeah. So like you said, I'm the global head of diversity strategy at Google. I've been there about two years right now. And I work in our diversity department. So I work with an amazing team of people that work in diversity, equity, and inclusion at Google really all of the spaces that we do there, both the internal-facing work and the external-facing work across the company, across the industry, and beyond, really to try and increase pathways to tech, to the tech industry for Black folks, for Latinx folks, for women, for people with disabilities, for LGBTQ people, really just expanding and opening that aperture just to make sure that it can be a more inclusive place. That's great. Before you started doing that, we're going to get into how you started down that career path. Love to hear that. But tell us a little bit about yourself and, and like where you grew up and where you're from. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, happy to. So I grew up in Minnesota in the 80s and the 90s, not to date myself too much. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, I thought I had a pretty average normal childhood. It's only really now that I've kind of grown up and went back out into the world and looked back on it that I realized I had this totally idyllic childhood that was like an episode of the wonder years. But at that time, I just thought it was normal. I mean, you know, my parents were madly in love when I was a kid. They're still madly in love. They've been married the whole time. I grew up in the suburbs. I would play, literally play in the street with the neighborhood kids. We'd play kick the can at night. We had to go home when the street lights came on. We'd all ride the bus to school together. And I just thought that's what life was like for everybody growing up in the suburbs of Minnesota. That was what I saw all around me. And Also, that's what I saw on TV. My parents and our family, we'd watch TGIF, uh, that sitcom lineup on Fridays. And mostly what I saw there was just nuclear white families in the suburbs. And so for a lot of my childhood, I experienced that as the norm. And I thought that's just what everybody had. I didn't really question it. And it wasn't until I started getting out in the world and coming out of the closet myself that I began to understand a lot of issues, things like privilege, like justice, like equity. And I am a gay, white, cisgender, able-bodied man. And I entered the world of the work that I do through the lens of what made me different. That was my sexuality. So I started my work in community advocacy work for the LGBTQ community. Amazing. And, you know, sort of growing up the way you just described, how do you think that's sort of shaped the way you're able to sort of work with others and sort of um, how that helps you today? Yeah, uh, that's a really great question. I think, you know, two things about that, right? The first is, I think it makes me realize the power of media, that all of the media that I consumed, and granted, I was a child, and this was, you know, before the explosion of cable and social media and all that. So all of the media that I consumed reinforced the worldview that I saw in my daily life. And I didn't get to experience a lot of diversity through the media that I was consuming at that time. So it really made me understand the importance in the megaphone that media has. And I don't mean just the traditional media, of course that, but I also mean digital media, social media, and really the responsibility that 
all of these companies and platforms have to ensure that diversity, equity, and inclusion is a part of what they do. But I also think it's been part of my understanding of feeling a little bit like I have, you know, one foot in the world of a lot of privilege right now as a white man. And then I have one foot in the world of the LGBTQ community and understanding what that's like. And I really feel like that experience, kind of having one foot in these two different spaces, has really shaped my career. And we'll get into it a little bit later, but especially where I see myself fitting into diversity work, which is kind of as this bridge, as a translational layer between all of the groups that need to work together to get this stuff done. Yeah, no, that's, those are great insights. And I, I talk about that a little bit, you know, moving into your career path, and you've done a lot of work at some amazing companies to address a, a lot of what you just talked about. To, you know, share with us, like, how you got started there and some of the work you've done. Yeah, totally. So my time working in LGBTQ rights coincided with marriage equality. That was really like the big issue that the community was working on at that time. Don't get me wrong. I am a huge fan of marriage equality. So is my husband. But it's important to recognize that that movement really centered some LGBTQ voices, but not all LGBTQ voices. It definitely didn't center the transgender community, the non-binary community. It didn't center people of color. It really mostly centered cis, white, LGB voices, people like myself, in terms of marriage equality being their primary need at that moment. And doing that work, I began to realize that if I truly believed in equity and justice and those principles, that I needed to do more. And I quickly realized, and if I needed to do more, I needed to learn more in order to be good at doing more. So I made a choice. I made a conscious choice to leave the nonprofit world to get more of that experience. And that's actually what brought me to Google. So like you mentioned, I work in a very large diversity department at Google right now. And through that, I've been able to build my experience in many different communities and really learning and experiencing all of the issues that need to be addressed for diversity, equity, inclusion. I've been able to learn a lot more about the Black and Latinx and Indigenous communities. I've been able to learn about women's rights and people with disabilities, the veterans community even. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to fold this knowledge in intersectionally with my experience in the LGBTQ community as well to try and find areas for overlap and areas where we can really work together in all this. And it's a journey for me, right? It's something that I'm still learning. I'm still growing in a lot of this. And I hope to always be learning and growing in this work. But I, I'm committed to doing this work. And, and I, I'm committed to, to always learning, always growing, always challenging myself. And I was trying to build that knowledge base for myself, really, as I kind of pursue these principles of equity and justice that sound pretty lofty, but finding ways to make sure I can fairly do the work. And James, is it that diversity of thought and learning? Is that what you love most about what you do today at Google? Yeah, that's a great question, right? And I think like diversity of thought is such a tricky phrase, right? I mean, what I think when I think of that is why do we want diversity, right? And when I think of like the work that we do, like what we want when we want to talk about the need for diversity in this work is people's expertise and their experience that Mm -hmm. they bring. And recognizing that we need a diversity of experience and a diversity of expertise. I think sometimes the phrase diversity of thought can be used in ways that maybe aren't as productive to the diversity work. And Mm. is kind of, you know, a little bit more this umbrella that actually invisibilizes things like race and invisibilizes Mm. black and brown voices and other marginalized communities as well. And so 
I think I want to make sure that it's not just this like blanket diversity of thought that we're going after, but we're talking about like wide diversity. What are we attempting to get at with that? And in doing so, honoring the expertise and the experience that all people bring to the work and realizing there's areas where we have gaps. There's untapped expertise that we don't have at the table. There's experiences that we are not accounting for in the products or the services that we're building. I love that response. And, and thanks for that. Uh, you just taught me something. So I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> so obviously, over the last couple of months in our country, right, there's been a lot of civil unrest, if you will. The Black Lives Matter movement has really taken a uh, sort of center stage. I want to go back to a comment you made earlier about sort of having one foot in privilege as a white male, and then, you know, another foot sort of in the LGBTQ community, right? And there's, there's been a lot of talk, and I've, I've read a lot of articles recently of how sort of the Black Lives Matter movement and the LGBTQ community should come together a bit more because they're essentially fighting for similar things, but just from a different vantage point, right? And so I'm curious to get your thoughts, as you said, you know, one foot, foot in privilege, but one foot in the LGBTQ community in terms of you know, how you balance that and your thoughts on sort of Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ community. Yeah, totally. Right. And I think you see a lot of that this year with pride and solidarity and what happened Mm -hmm. last month. Right. And ensuring that we're having inclusive pride as well. And I think acknowledging that, like, there is not a monolithic Black community and a monolithic LGBTQ community. There's overlap, like they're intersectional communities. Right. But to the question that you asked and thinking about it a little bit more, I think how I approach the work to the point that you made about having, you know, one foot in two different worlds right now is thinking that there's a lot of similarities and there's a lot of differences between Mm -hmm. what you talked about in in, in the struggles of the black community and the struggles of the LGBTQ community. Right. And I think looking at back at my time in the marriage equality movement, I think a lot of what that movement borrowed from was the civil rights movement and learning what works and learning how to create narratives, how to form movements, and how to demand change, Mm -hmm. right? And then I think what the LGBTQ movement had the benefit of at that time around marriage equality was the internet and the speed at which you can disseminate an error, the speed at which you can mobilize people, the speed at which you can really build and amplify a movement. And I think it's this evolving community organizing model that we see, right? And I think it's about sharing the best practices and building building upon that. And I think that's what we see now when we see what's happening with the way that we're spreading racial justice messages, not just around the US, but around the globe. The way that that footage of George Floyd just went viral and really, really resonated with people there is is a way to kind of take what the marriage equality movement used well about social media to disseminate things and find ways to adapt that as well. So on terms of like the practical sides of movement building, I see a lot of similarities between the communities there. In terms of the issues of the communities, I think as a white man, I'm not going to pretend to know what the struggles are for the black community. Mm -hmm. But what I can do is I can learn, I can listen, and I can use the privilege that I have to advocate and to give voice to those people. And so I think a lot of that, I think a lot of what I saw that was encouraging about Pride this year was about actually giving the stage, giving the microphone, giving the moment in time to black leaders, to black voices to say that. We want to continue this moment. We want to make sure that this is not just another flash in the pan, a one and done moment. We want to find ways to extend it. And I found that really encouraging to see communities coming together and consciously working together to try and join movements, to try and join moments together and really push push for these progressive causes that I think we're advocating. 
Gotcha. Thanks for that. Really insightful. More of a personal question here for you. How, how have you handled personally times when you've either been discriminated against or faced, let's call it, unconscious bias or something to that effect? Uh, curious to know how, how you personally have handled those situations in the past. Yeah, totally. So I guess I'll caveat all this by saying, again, recognize I have a lot of privilege in my life right now. Mm -hmm. But in a previous life, I was an actor. It was actually one of my first jobs that I have. Not a very successful actor, but enough to pay the bills. And the big break that I had was I got a TV commercial, actually. I booked it in Minnesota, where I'm from. And in the TV commercial, I had to hug a real live bear, like an eight-foot-tall, 400-pound bear, a literal bear hug. And now sitting here chatting with y'all, you know, like accepting an acting gig and your agent says, you have to hug a bear and you're sitting on the phone and your couch and you're a broke actor, like hugging a bear sounds like one thing. But then when you show up on set and you see like a literal bear trainer, ambulances on standby, it's quite a different thing at this moment of like, oh, I need to actually hug a bear. <laughs> and so I had this moment where, you know, the cameras start rolling and they say, okay, Jim, you need to climb over that electric fence into the set with the live bear. And you are the only one on that side of the electric fence. And as I'm climbing over this electric fence, I had this crystal clear moment where I only had one thought in my mind. And that thought was, I need to get a new agent. And it actually <laughs> had nothing to do with the bear that was staring at me and looming over me right now. But it actually had to do with the reason that I was so willing to climb into that bear pen in the first place. And that was because before this commercial, I wasn't booking many gigs. And my agent had a theory about why I wasn't booking a lot of gigs. And they thought it was because I was too gay. And so in order to disprove that, I did the butchest thing I can imagine. I literally strapped on a backpack of raw chicken and climbed over a fence to get a bear hug from a 400-pound bear. That's the only way to make the bear hug you. He's going for the chicken. He's not trying to actually hug me. You just casually put in the raw chicken part. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the, <laughs> no, they, they didn't tell me that until... Yeah. <laughs> that was a surprise for me, too, on set that day. <laughs> but it was in that moment, right, where I'm realizing I'm the only one here who is literally risking my life for this commercial. And I'm doing so because someone else thinks I'm too gay. And I had this mm. moment of clarity... I started to really understand what inclusion means and the value of things like inclusion and belonging, where I thought, why am I risking my life to change to try to fit the definition of what they think is acceptable? Why can't this definition of what is acceptable expand to include people like me in it? And that was like a really powerful moment for me in my career. Also, it changed, you know, not wanting to be an actor for a lot of reasons as well, but really understanding like, how far I was willing to go without even really questioning that just to try and appease someone else's perception of what was right. I'm not sure if I really answered your question or just told you no, that, raw chicken. But no, you, <laughs> you answer the question and that's an amazing story. And I think, you know, what I got out of this is don't sort of change who you are. You have to be who you are. And regardless of what people tell you or what people want you to be, you know, be you. And I, and I think that now more than ever, ever it's, it's super important for that. And, you know, a lot of conversation about, you know, sort of companies making sure that they allow people to bring their full self to work and be authentic as well, too. And I, and I think what you're saying, that example you just gave us fits right into that and is a great example of why you shouldn't try to be someone you're not. Exactly. 
you know, you want to make sure, again, we go back to why diversity, right? And if it's about this expertise and this experience that we don't have that we need, you're only truly going to get that if people feel comfortable being themselves at work. If they're being forced to assimilate, you're going to get groupthink. You're going to get the same thing that you have. It doesn't really matter who you're bringing in the door. You need to create a space where everyone feels included and feels like they belong so you can actually start to get the full benefits of having a diverse workforce. Yep. James, it sounds like you had a, a great childhood growing up and surrounded by love and support. And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about some folks that influenced you early on personally? And then also as you left those environments, some people that, you know, influenced you, maybe mentors that helped influence you from a career perspective or a perspective or even outside of where you grew up. Tell us a little bit about those sort of people that, that impacted So I am named after both of my grandfathers, actually. I'm named after my dad's dad and my mom's dad. And Grandpa Jim, my dad's dad, he raised nine children, including my dad, in a rural farmhouse in Minnesota without indoor plumbing. And I remember these stories that he would wake up, and my dad and all the kids would wake up at the crack of dawn in these freezing cold Minnesota winters to go out and milk the cows and take care of the farm and take care of the land that way. And, you know, we still go back there. Like my dad still takes our family back and we still see that farm. And we, I still hear the stories and everything about him and his siblings and my grandparents. And a lot of those small family farms aren't too common anymore, uh, not just in Minnesota, but really across the country. And so I think what really resonates with me with Grandpa Jim's story is that he devoted his entire life to taking care of the people and the land in his corner of the world, of his wife, his nine kids, and the land that they owned, and really just doing the best that he could in what he was given in the world to make sure that he was being responsible with that and taking care of that. And then I think of Grandpa Daryl, my mom's dad, and he was a pilot who patrolled the Panama uh, Panama Canal during World War II. And before he left for the war, he gave my grandmother, who was his girlfriend at the time, he gave her a locket and he promised to marry her when he got back from the war. And he did. He got back from the war. And when he returned, he spent the rest of his life dedicated to those two things, airplanes and my grandma. And what I think a lot right now is how pure that sounds. And I think nowadays, we have such a fractured attention span right now with so many competing demands on, on, uh, for our attention. But I think of how powerful it can be to identify the things that you stand for in the world, the things that matter to you and commit your life to those things and just be really unapologetic and pure and forceful in going for those things and ruthlessly prioritizing those things, whether those are people, whether those are causes, whether it's missions, whatever it is, and just dedicating your life to those things. And so, I think a lot of my grandpas who are my namesake, and I think I learned a lot just from not only hearing their stories and hearing them repeatedly, but also just trying to internalize those stories and, you know, peel away some of the layers and think like, what's behind just the work that they did? Like, what was the meaning of that? What do you think of when you look back on a life's work? Both of them have passed away now. So what do you think of a life? What do you think of what you've left behind? And how do you make sense of that in a larger scheme of things? So both of those men had a big influence on me personally. I think professionally, as I've moved forward in my career and worked at you know many different places, I have learned a lot from many, many great chief diversity officers that I have had the benefit of working with, with Melanie Parker at Google right now, with 
Valisha Butterfield-Jones, with Jeffrey Siminoff, with Tiffany R. Warren, with Una King, with these amazing people that have dedicated their careers to diversity, equity, and inclusion, not just in the tech industry, but really across corporate America and are making great strides there. And I think all of the work that we're doing, that I'm doing, that the industry is doing, we stand on their shoulders. We build on the work that they're doing. And Tiffany R. Warren always says, rise up and reach back. And I think that's what we need to do in this work. And that's certainly what I've seen people model for me. And that's really what I've tried to emulate in my work as well. You know, James, you, you work for a global company, right? So we're, we're grateful you're sharing this time with us, but your work hours go well beyond even what we're doing right now. So tell us what it's like to sort of balance the sort of work-life aspects. You know, is there such a thing or how do you manage that working for a global company where there's a lot of priorities that happen to you know, exist outside of just where you call home? Yeah, I think in general, that's a struggle, right? I think just in general, the work that I do aside, I think just the pace of work has really increased over time, right? The pace at which we do work, the pace at which people expect responses, things like that. But I think also, as you think of what's happening with COVID-19 right now, right? And we're all working from home right now. I think those lines of what is work and what is not work are get really blurry right now. But I think for me, being home for this work from home period, it's helped me find these little moments throughout my day for balance, whether that's like taking a walk around my block or playing with my dog for a few minutes or eating lunch with my husband or something like that. Whereas before I had to have like a discrete eight to 10 hour block that was work and then an eight hour block that was home life. And I do some work during that too, but now they're kind of both interwoven. And I found it actually beautiful to be able to like take five minutes and run from a meeting to go and scratch my dog's belly or to clean my apartment or whatever I need to do on those things. I think also though, this moment we're in where it, it really feels like there is a hopefully lasting conversation that the country is having about racial justice right now. It feels like a moment that we need to ensure that we are putting all of our efforts forward. I think to be at a time where we are having these conversations and we're having them across the country and we're having them at scale and they seem to be making an impact. And hopefully we are seeing what is the beginning of some real systemic and lasting change here. And to be at a global company like Google with those resources focused on doing diversity at that time, I think it's this perfect storm, this moment in time. And I know not just myself, but a lot of us that are doing this work right now, we feel a real responsibility to make sure that we are using this moment of time to advance the work and to really use people's heightened attention and awareness around this right now. I think, you know, a, a lot of the time doing this work, not just at Google, but across, you know, across my career, a lot of my job is like knocking on doors and asking people to listen to me or banging on tables and demanding they listen to me, right? But now they're coming to us. And so now there's this like real urgency and real rush for the work, which is fantastic. And I want to make sure that we that we capitalize on that and we take and we use this moment for all that it can be. But I'll be honest with you, that makes work-life balance a constant struggle, right? And I think it's something that I'm always trying to check in with, check in with the people that I love around me and just make sure that I'm taking care of them as much as I'm taking care of myself, as much as I'm taking care of the work as well. Any concern, James, that this will die down? And what I mean by that is, you know, part of my concern personally is that as the emotion of the last, say, two to three months in our country fades away, that people will just go back to the way they were before, you know, George Floyd killing, right? I'm very concerned about that. 
And one of the things that I, I like to talk about is sort of, you know, what are we as individuals, as a society and as an organization, organizations going to continue to do to move the ball forward, right? Because this is not a sprint, it's a marathon. And in order for you to run a marathon, you have to have the stamina and the mental capacity and wherewithal to continue to move forward. So just curious to know, it's great that we have all this momentum now, right? But I'm just curious to get your thoughts on the long-term impact and any concerns about that that you may have. Totally. I think you hit the nail on the head, Corral. I think, you know, there is this feeling of like, is this a movement or is this a moment, right? And what does it mean? And how do we ensure that that we're turning a, a moment into a lasting movement right now? And I think, you know, from my perspective, I'm also aware that I am getting a warped sense of importance around this. I mean, when I check in with my, I'm from Minnesota, right? So the people that I'm checking in with about this live in Minneapolis. It's people who they drive by the memorial to George Floyd all the time. They experience a lot of this in their daily lives right now, but that's not everyone's reality, right? right. Like people can turn off their computer, turn off their TV and walk away right now. So I think I have to be conscious for myself that I'm getting an inflated sense of where this is at on people's radars right now. Mm-hmm. I, I would also say, and, you know, and history would show us, you know, we've had these murders before and they've right. been blips on the radar, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think we have to like bring that knowledge along with us as well. I think in addition to that, one of the things that I'm you know, a little wary of is oversimplifying the asks of what we need in this moment so that it can feel like people are just checking off a to-do list, right? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, let me use an analogy here of marriage equality, right? The LGBTQ community made marriage equality such a big deal that when we got it, it was like, great, well, you're self for, you don't need anything else. And when we came back and we were like, no, now that we have a trans community and they need to be recognized and they need protections and they need rights. A lot of it was like, whoa, whoa, we, what, you want something else now? We just gave you marriage equality. We thought that solved everything here. So we need to be cognizant of ensuring that what we are asking for is investments in systemic long-term change here. Mm. And I think that's an important thing to figure out like how we get that right too. Right, right. Okay, awesome. Thank you for that. Fun question. I love asking every guest on the show. Give us the top three apps that you use on your phone, which I'm assuming is an Android, but you can't name email, text, or calendar. No email, text, or calendar. Yes, it is an Android, um, and I and I get a lot of uh, I get a lot of flack from my friends for my green text bubbles for sure. Um, so the top app on my phone right now is Zillow. I'm in this phase where I'm in a tiny New York City apartment during shelter in place and work from home, and these walls keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller, <laughs> and so I have these grand delusions of buying a McMansion and you know getting out of the city and all of that stuff. So. I do a lot of uh, fantasy house hunting on Zillow. So that's a top one. Um, I use Headspace as well for mm-hmm. meditation. So mm-hmm. that's been something that I've tried to introduce just in the past few months into my daily routine right now. And I really think the way that Headspace has the program built, it just works for me and like how meditation fits into my life and kind of the prompts they give you for all of that. And then I would say third, I used to work at Twitter. I'm a huge fan of the people at Twitter. I'm a huge fan of the product. And there's just really no better way to get your finger on the pulse of what's happening right now across issues, across communities, across the world, across the news cycle right now. So for sure, I'd say those are my three. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing those. And also thanks for sharing some of your time with us. A lot of our viewers and listeners like to stay in touch and ask follow-up questions sometimes to some of the great stuff that you shared with us. 
how can they find you? What are the best ways? It sounds like maybe Twitter might be one of them and a couple of other ways. <laughs> yeah, maybe Twitter, Twitter, LinkedIn, all of the social medias for sure. My handle on those is Jim says hi. Hi is H-E-I-G-H, like my last name. It's very ah. clever slash confusing for a lot of people. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for hanging with us again. And for all of you joining us, thank you for spending some time with us. Search for more shows, look for Minority Report Podcast, and look for our logo. Thanks again, James. Thank you.